Your move, creep. Hello everybody, welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. And we have another banging episode. Another different episode. Because as you guys know, the SAG-AFTRA actors are on strike. And, you know, a lot of people have said, hey, while the strike is happening, let's not really talk about big, giant, temple studio films. You know, just to kind of kind of help as as little as it is you know just just uh just move the needle kind of in the absence of writers and actors like what would these studios have to offer not much so austin and i have decided to kind of focus on smaller films different genres from different well, countries films from from companies that aren't being struck specifically yes. uh because that you know like the amptp that's like most movies in theaters like the Universal, Disney, and most movies on stream, like major streaming sites like uh, Max or Hulu, uh, Netflix, all that stuff. They're all holding out on the creatives that are behind making all the stuff that we like to watch. So we're trying to cover movies that aren't promoting those companies. Yeah, we started off with Akira, right, which is an anime film. We both loved it, thought it thought it's aged beautifully. And we've talked about other films that we're going to do. And we've talked about maybe going to French New Wave documentaries, like low budget or indie documentaries. And we're this week, we're going to be visiting an old, old school film. We're going all the way back to the 20s. Back 1920s. before they started talking in movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Austin, what movie are we going to be talking about this week? This week, we will be talking about... The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, a German silent horror film directed by Robert Weine. I think it's Weine. Yeah, it is one of those German expressionist movies. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. We will come back with a more definitive explanation on what that genre is. But basically, this is the period between World War One and World War Two in Germany. And, you know, they're like rebuilding their country. And for a moment before the Nazis took over, there was some like really interesting artistic movements in the country. And this is like one of those things. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is honestly a film school staple. Like, there's kind of movies that every film school kind of teaches. And this is one of them because in film school, you kind of learn film from like the very beginning, from the silent to the Nickelodeon, then to the silent film, to the to the talkies, um, you know, Soviet era, Italian, uh, and then all the way to like modern. Right. And when you talk about German expressionist expressionism, during that era, this is one of the go-to movies. Now, there's a lot of films and a lot of directors. Like, I know King Vidor is one of them. A lot of great films from that era. But Doc- Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 
is kind of like a horror fantasy film and leading up we're heading into October. So it's like, oh, it's kind of fitting. Disclaimer, I I watched this movie, but I was also falling asleep, not because of the movie, but because I was just always sleepy. I'm always tired. If you know me, I, I always say I'm tired, uh, but I've always had an itch for this movie because it looks really interesting like the look of it uh, i mean the film stock is really old but like the way the sets are built they're very angular and very uh not normal right because the whole thing about german expressionism is to convey feelings and emotions in abstract surreal ways and one way they would do that is through the sets think about it this way like you know sometimes in like those Disney animated films when a character is going through like creepy woods like the trees are like super crooked and like sometimes they'll be shaped like creatures and monsters and the sky will have like a red hue that's they take that and like turn it to 11 and that's German expressionism and I've always wanted to revisit the film right especially after doing this podcast and just to see what I think about it now yeah, you're you're older. You know, you're not in class being forced to watch a movie exactly. that maybe you don't want to watch. I think that was one of the things. I want to. I don't like being told what to do, which is mm-hmm. very dumb because I need someone to tell me what to do. I need it, <laughs> but I hate it. And when someone's like, "Go watch right. this movie," I'm like, "No," but yeah, but I probably would have passed way more classes in college if I had listened. Oh my god! Um, I say you're telling on yourself. It's been years, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, they can't. They can't. What are they gonna do? Now? Well, yeah, take back your diploma. It's too late. You got it laminated. Exactly. <laughs> if they threaten to take it, I'll just take go to Mexico. <laughs> Imagine getting extra, extradited because your diploma needs to be rescinded because of <laughs> something you said on a podcast. That's funny. That could be funny. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember this watching the movie and was like, wait a minute. This looks like a Rob Zombie movie. Like, a, not Rob Zombie movie, but a Rob Zombie music video. Because mm. I'm pretty sure one of his videos copies the the look of of this uh, film. It's a very distinct look. Like, the house, like, I don't even remember what the film is about, but I remember how it looks. It mm-hmm. looks like creepy like the houses and the buildings don't look like buildings they look like it just feels like wrong like something's something's not well like mentally you're someone's disturbed and the buildings are a reflection of that mental state as far as i can remember uh even like the picture is like like the the poster on wikipedia like this dude in all black holding this woman down What's going on here? I don't know. The lamppost is crooked. These like weird, I don't know if they're plants or what. They're crooked. It looks disturbed. And I think that's kind of like the the vibe that Rob Zombie was trying to create in his music and his music videos and eventually his films. Uh, I remember this movie and I remember Nosferatu. Mm. It's these two movies that look really creepy because I don't know, there's like something weird about the silent film because you can't talk. You have to act through your eyes. And I remember like really weird eye stuff going on in these films. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to go back to them to, you know, because back then when you're forced to learn about something, you're. I feel like I wasn't as willing to learn about it. But now, now we have a podcast and we like going into stuff like this in depth. It'll be a lot more fun. People get a little bit more out of it this time. Yeah, I feel like now there is a gen. A- like a genuine curiosity to watch the movie and kind of dissect it, right? Instead of it just being like, all right, for tonight's homework, go watch Doc- Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's like, oh, like I'd rather be playing games. And now I'm like, oh, I will stop playing video games to watch this movie <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm genuinely curious. Like I want to know. Yeah. And I'm curious to see what kind of what kind of uh whether it holds up or not right like clearly so the movie is critically acclaimed like on rotten tomatoes you know they say arguably the first true horror film the cabinet of dr caligari sets a brilliant brilliantly high bar for the genre and remains terrifying nearly a century after it first stalked the sent the screen I think that's great. That sounds awesome. And I'm like, all right, let's see how much it holds up. Now, obviously, I am going to grade on a curve because, you know, this it's is a silent film. It's a silent film. It was a, you know, genre bending first of its kind kind of movie. So obviously, a lot of movies and TV shows, especially in horror, have been influenced by this film. So going in with a going in with a curve already in mind, but I wanted to like, no, how well does it hold up? Can you show this to modern, modern audiences, uh, uh, modern audiences that are willing to watch a silent black and white horror film? And can they be entertained? That's kind of Mm -hmm. how I'm going in. Okay. I want to know what, what the movie is trying to say. I think if your country just got out of a war and you lost, right. What does the art look like? I want to know. That's sure. kind of what happened in Akira, but like Akira, that was uh, uh, Otomo grew up after Japan had already lost the war. You know, uh, so this is like this is like fresh after losing the war. I one of the things I will say I did learn from college. From one thing I did certifiably learn from my diploma, <laughs> even though I slept through most of the movies, is if you want to study a film. You got to study the form of the film, but you also got to study the time and the place that the film came out in. Those are two crucial things. If you really want to break down what the movie is saying or what it's trying to say, break down the form, obviously. And by form, I mean, what cameras did they use? What angles? What color? What's the sound? What's the music? That's the form. Um, Mm -hmm. And what year and what place was the movie distributed in? Right. It's not, those aren't too, like, those are, those aren't too, like, you're going to get everything from the film with these two, but those are good places to start. Those are Mm -hmm. two things that you don't want to ignore when the film was released and where, because that could very much inform you as to the decisions the filmmakers took. Because again, Akira was one angle that, okay, Otomo grew up after World War II, after the bombing of Hiroshima, that's one angle to look at it. Now, you can't just restrain yourself to just that angle, but look into it. Be curious. And again, this was the big war, the big one, right? The first world war. war. Obviously, that resonated with people. And this is right after that. 
and Germany got fucked. Like, remember, Germany, World War I were not the Nazis. Like, it was not black and white like that, right? And you were talking about a country that was decimated and that was in super big depression. So how does the art reflect that? That is a good point to look at it, Austin. Like, I agree. That's an awesome point. What does this movie mean? What is it trying to convey about Germany at the time? Yeah. Um, okay, so what actually is this movie about? Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, it tells the story of an insane hypnotist who uses a somnambulist. Somnambulist, which is funny because I feel like I didn't know what the word meant, and I've never heard it used outside of the context of this movie. But it's somebody who sleepwalks, someone who has the disorder of sleepwalking. So they, uh, this insane hypnotist controls someone who sleepwalks to commit murders. That's essentially what it's about. Okay. I'm kind of remembering a little bit about the movie and that the, the guy who sleepwalks isn't really that isn't really a bad guy, but he's being manipulated. Or so we think. <gasps> or so we think. Oh, dude. What? OK, I gotta, we got to watch this movie. Yeah. got to watch this movie. Um, but this movie came out in 1920. So, you know, the box office numbers are a little bit uh, weird because they didn't really keep track of this stuff as much there's a lot of movies that came out in this period that are just lost forever because the way that we preserve film it, you know it had to be a certain way otherwise the film stock would get ruined and you can't replace that you know there's no hard drives or a cloud service that you can download the movie from once that shit deteriorates and there's no copies left it's gone uh, which is what happened to a lot of oscar michelle movies uh, the director Ooh, that's of- right Within Our Gates, which we covered uh, last year, I think. Yes, yeah. Oh, go go revisit that episode. That is a great primer for today because these movies came out relatively close to each other, either the same year or this one came out a year prior. I mean, right. Within Our Gates was an American film. This is a German film, so they might have exported it to the U.S. in 1920, might have been finished in 1919. So it's, a, it's around the same era, but those were some yeah, of the- very different cultures, though. Like yes. the, because Oscar Michelle is a, a a black filmmaker, and he had he didn't have all the resources that you know a major studio would have, so he had to do everything with the funds that he made with this small team. This I I think is a much bigger production because they could actually like make sets and stuff, uh, and it's it's from a completely different perspective. Even though they came out in the same year radically different culture yeah that'd be really interesting actually to kind of listen to that episode in this one to just Mm -hmm. talk about the filmmaking from these two different people these different cultures right and one of them talking about it through the injustice of racial uh the racial injustices of america or in america and the other one talking about a post uh great war point of view so very very interesting Huh. Yeah. Um, so let's go to 1920. Let's see what else was at the box office then. Um, I have a list of the highest grossing films of 1920, but I don't know how much I trust this list. All I know is that the number one movie was, in fact, it's been cited as the number one movie through multiple sources. So I'm like, OK, I guess this is was this was the most popular movie. 
Number one in 1920 was a film called Something to Think About, with nine million dollars at the box office. Oh shit! I'm I'm not gonna do the uh, the inflation math, the inflation thing, but like it it was a big deal from 1920 to now nine million. Uh, must be a must be a big. I deal. mean, yeah, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> uh, number two, way down east. Number three. Over the Hill to the Poor House. Number four, Pollyanna. Number five, Shipwrecked Among Cannibals. It's a pretty risque title for I, a... Whoa, I really want to watch that now. movie. What the hell? That sounds awesome. Uh, number six, The Mask of Zorro. Seven, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Eight, The Roundup. Nine, Double Speed. And ten, Excuse My Dust. I swear, some of these they they must have made these up like for to complete out a top ten list. It's not a movie, man. There have been so many titles that you've mentioned that I'm like, that's a made up thing. You're like, nope, that's a legit thing. Hold on, just because I feel like there's always one movie that's like, what the hell is this movie? Mm-hmm. Excuse my dust is a surviving 1920 American silent comedy drama filmed by the famous players Lasky and distributed by Paramount Pictures. Boo, Paramount, Paramount. <laughs> but it, it is based upon a Saturday evening post short story, The Bear Trap. Uh, okay, the main character is called Toodles. Uh, he's a former automobile racer. He's promised his wife that he will refrain from speeding. But he gives in to temptation, and through the influence of his father-in-law, the judge deprives him of the right to pilot a car for six months. Oh, so he's like a, I got a race. I only know how to do one thing, and that's racing. It's like a villain speed racer, <laughs> it sounds like. But, yeah, that's 1920s. That's the kind of movies that were in theaters. I, I, maybe I should have Googled the, the cannibals one. All right, Shipwrecked Among Cannibals. Oh, my God. It is a silent travel documentary film. The film featured episodes from Siam, Java, and New Guinea, plus an apparently fictitious encounter with cannibals on a small tribe on a small island in the South Pacific. Oh, this movie sounds kind of racist. I was going to say, it sounds hella racist. I mean, this look, sounds racist, dude. <laughs> yeah, it, I'm very curious to see what that's even about. Well, but it sounds hella racist. Like, hey, look at those people. They they're trying to eat the white man. Yeah, uh, the Wikipedia page is very short because it is a lost film. There's oh. no archives of it, so you can't watch this movie. Uh, under the pretense of being an, an educational ethnographic film. Uh, film producers have often justified exploitative elements such as half-clad natives in South Seas Island documentaries. At least one educational publication, which appeared to take the film as fully authentic, suggested that the film could, with review, be used in schools. Although <sighs> Shipwrecked Among Cannibals generally received good reviews, it did not do well at the box office. Then why was it at the top ten? But yeah, this movie sounds racist. Yeah. And going to these different... These different tribes, and you like make up a tr- a tribe of cannibals. It's like the nook of the north, all of the nook of the north, yeah. all over again. Yeah, look at these uncivilized people, and it's like ah, nah, we're we're yeah, and you're seeing it like in a movie theater. Yeah, and it's like oh yeah, this they went there clearly. That's that's New Guinea. Yeah, 
man. I'm really curious. <laughs> well, uh, but I guess we'll ha- it's only something you can read about because you can't watch the yeah. film. Yeah. But anyway, um, no, I think Dr. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I'm very interested. I'm just to watch it again. Um, awesome. Where can we watch this movie? Where can we watch this movie? Oh, I think it's it's in the public domain. So I think you can just like look it up on YouTube. Yeah, you can just watch this on YouTube. Oh, no shit. Yeah, there's a rental fee for it, too. Uh, yeah, there's it's streaming in a lot of places. I, If you want to watch it on like a, a premium quality is as high as you can, probably rent it. But if you just want to watch it, you know, it's on YouTube and on Tubi, which is also a free service with ads, I believe. Um, yeah. But uh, with that, we will see you in one minute with the rest of the episode. everybody welcome back to retrograde podcast we have just finished watching the cabinet of dr caligari from 1920 directed by scroll up scroll up directed by robert vine vine i think it's vine d vine yeah this is not the first time I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie a long time ago for, I know I saw it for uh, when we studied at UC, UC Irvine. Go Ant Eaters. Zot, what, what is it? Zot, Zot, Zot. Zot, Zot. Zot, Zot. Yeah. Zot, Zot, Zot. <laughs> I've never went to their games. I'm, I never went. I'm, I'm not fun. a good. They were cool. I'm not a good, uh, I didn't have a lot of school pride, I guess. Hater. And I, I get so upset when they send me the, oh, you're an alumni. Why don't you donate to us? I'm like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. I mean, sending it to, like, if you have money to to spare, go for it. But, man, we are no, two working boys. Why? Why? They get money. And that is true. They're making a lot of money off of us. Yeah, I'd rather spend it to somebody who actually needs it you know or boba for myself (laughs) (laughs) hey one dollar boba oh dude that's where i fell in love with boba you see irvine (laughs) um anyway uh we i watched not the first time i've seen the film um i watched it again for the podcast and it's it's still really cool it still it still has um I could see why it's so special. And I I was thinking as I was watching it, you could totally make this movie again today. But like just update a few things. I feel like the story has like really good bones. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole frame story thing, I'm kind of like 
half and half about. Mm. In parts, I think it's kind of dumb. And other parts, I'm like, well, this could have been better if it did it this way or something. Um, but yeah, those are my those are my thoughts. Still good. Frame story, not a huge fan of. Uh, I'm right there with you. Um, rewatch. So I was. So I watched this movie. Uh, like I saw it like two or three times in between the first part and the second part, <laughs> just because it took us so long. Uh, this was one of the movies that we watched at school, but I forgot or did not watch most of it because I fell asleep in class. But I, I'm there with you. Like I think the movie's really cool, really interesting. I think it has a lot going for it. I think you described it best. It has really good bones, uh, and. It's interesting that you say that this movie could re- be remade because I absolutely agree. I think a lot of these older films could be retold, uh, but refined with refined visuals, refined technology, and with like modern nuances that could probably update the stories. Right? It's yeah, interesting. Not, not as a way to like replace. You can't no, replace no, 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 this. No, 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 no. But I feel like you could totally make a good movie based off of this. Like you could do a good remake. You know, a good Absolutely. reboot. Keep, keep the original as it is. Don't ever touch it. You know, everything afterwards is just an addition to the original. I'm all about film conservation. A hundred percent. And the fact that this movie is available on YouTube is amazing. I think that's great. But I totally could see this story being remade. And it was interesting because I was reading about a few months ago how uh, Robert Edgars, the director of The Northman, The Vavitch, and uh, The Lighthouse is actually remaking Nosferatu. Right, the OG Ooh, vampire story. That movie has been remade before, too. It has been, but I think Robert Eggers is going to bring. I'm curious to see how Nosferatu fits with his vision. I like all of his movies. I think they're great, uh, mm-hmm. but it kind of goes with what you said that some of these movies can be remade. Look, man, there's no reason that we need to be remaking Point Break or remaking <laughs> Mean Girls or remaking what's another remake that's coming out? Well, that's the, stupid. Mean Girls is a musical, though. No, so no, no. I think I read different. something that there was they were going to remake it for a film. I'm fine with it being a musical. It's it's going to be the film. Uh, the musical is being remade, right? Unless think. there's something else that I don't know about. But I know they're making the musical. I'll take that back then. Because if the if the musical is being made into a movie, I'm okay with that. I'm fine with the musical existing. Yeah. But I think I read something that Mean Girls, the 2004 film, was going to be remade. I was like, that's kind of yeah, dumb. I think they're talking about the musical. Okay, okay. Then I retract that. But yeah, like... Uh, Point Break is like a pointless ass remake. What other remakes have been made? And I'm like, there's there's so many remakes of movies from the 90s and 2000s. I'm like, why are you guys bothering with this? Like, remake some old shit. Remake Nosferatu. Remake the the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Remake Met, uh, Metropolis. Like, remake that old shit because that's the stuff that really needs it. Remake some of George Millet like old short films you know like the magician <laughs> filmmaker and like make it into a feature like why not i think that could be kind of cool and yeah, anyway. they, they, they remade suspiria and i really like the remake yeah uh, yeah and, and i don't when think that, that's a popular take though but i, I like that the, remake's pretty good dude. yeah like remake stuff that could benefit from having a remake not just oh well you know the cgi is better so i think a lot of it is to ex you're, you're they're thinking like franchise 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 yes, but very it's much like, so why not make a cool movie, you know, why, that's in conversation with this other really cool movie? You know, I I feel like a lot of the approach to these sequels and reboots and shit, remakes, is all wrong. Yes, I, but, I agree with you. 
And I think this movie could definitely be remade because the bones are really solid. I think the the core of this movie is really cool and interesting. The way it was made is really cool. But I also yes. agree with you that the frame story is um, interesting. I don't know whether in a bad or good way. I still saw the movie like tw- two times, three times, and I still can't make up my mind about it. Because at, it's, at first it feels like it's unnecessary. And then you see where the story goes <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, there's two different interpretations that you can have of it. Uh, does it hurt or benefit the story? I think it's on your own perception, but it does muddle the messaging a little bit more compared to if the movie had ended maybe six minutes earlier. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you haven't seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or it's been a while since you've seen the film, uh, this is the part of the episode where we talk about what happens in the movie. We summarize it. And then there, there's spoilers here, all right? Because to talk about a movie the way we do, you have to talk about spoilers. And I hate spoiling movies for people that like actually want to see the thing. So this is your warning. I'm sorry. I had to Google it because I had to know. Some some pointless-ass remakes. Ghost in the Shell, Hellboy 2019, mm. The Wicker Man, Psycho, Robocop. Oh, yeah. Ah, the RoboCop sequel or the the ah, yeah, Total Recall. I haven't seen the Total Recall one, but like, I don't know what you could what they added to to Total Recall to make it special. Kate Beckinsale's in it, and she's she's beautiful, like she's gorgeous yeah. to look at, and she hits Colin Farrell with like her crotch, like it's like a weird. It's obviously very sexual. And it was funny. It was in the in the Sharon Stone and Arnold fight too. Yes, yeah. Well, it's sexual, and I just thought it was so funny how they did it. She like, he's like on the ground, and she like slides, and like her crotch hits its face. And I was like, that's kind of hot, but also really stupid. But (laughs) I think that's the that's the one benefit to that movie. But sorry, just a little tangent. I was like, yeah. Okay, so. if you haven't seen the movie in a while, if you want to just listen to the episode, this is the part of the episode for you. Okay, so it hap- It starts off, Francis is our main character. He's like in a park with this old guy and this woman, kind of creepy. She kind of like walks around and uh, the old guy is like telling this story and he's like, man, spirits, they're, they're all around us, man. And then they see the woman and then Francis is like, she's my my fiance. You know what? That story you told me is nothing compared to what happened to us. (laughs) And then it goes into a flashback, which is where a bulk of the movie takes place. He talks about uh, he lived in this town, Holston, Holston Wall. And he talks about uh, he had this this friend, Alan. And Alan and Francis are both in love with Jane, the woman who was kind of creepy in the beginning, um, Francis's fiance. They are in this like weird, the, the city looks weird. Like the, the buildings are kind of slanted. The streets are uneven. The windows are in weird places. All the people in charge sit on these really, really high chairs that like, dude, that will give you back problems. <laughs> like it doesn't seem like a, it was a creepy looking town. And they see this notice for a fair and Alan is like, he's like a happy dude. He's like always smiling. He's, he's kind of like, yeah, let's go do something fun. Let's go to the fair. 
Meanwhile, you have this weird guy with a top hat and a cane who, who it seems like he moves at a different frame rate. This is Dr. Caligari. Uh, he is going to the town clerk and he's like, I need a permit because I, I want to be a, a part of the fair. And the guy in charge is like, well, wait there. The dude's busy. He's kind of rude. Time passes. Caligari's like, why is this guy being so rude to me? And he's like, okay, what do you want? And he's like, I want to be at the fair. What's your act? I, I have a somnambulist, which is a sleepwalker. Uh, and the, the clerk is like, okay. And then he kind of brushes him off to like an underling. And then that, that person takes care of it. But Dr. Caligari is clearly like upset about this. And the next day, the clerk is dead. <laughs> uh, so I wonder like, who did it. <laughs> so the audience, like we all know, okay, that Dr. Caligari guy is evil. But nobody knows. Nobody's like puts one and one together and is like, dude, that there was a weird guy here that the clerk was kind of rude to the day before he died. But let's hey, your permit's good. Come to the fair, Dr. Caligari. The next morning, Francis and Alan go to the sideshow, uh, the fair. There's a monkey there and 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 stuff. Dr. Caligari's just like walking around. It seems like like he's he's weird, like he's odd. He stands out, but nobody else cares. And Dr. Caligari, I it feels like this is a silent film. So like everything that I'm saying here is kind of like how I feel as an audience interpreting his his actions. It feels like Caligari knows nobody su suspects him and he's kind of like surprised by it. I would say he's just really observant of people and it's almost like he has like a general dislike of people and he's just yeah. kind of observing them and not so much that he's surprised that people aren't paying attention to him, but more of just like, ugh, look at these plebs. That's how I interpreted it. Okay. That's fair too. I think that makes sense as well. Um, and he, he sets up his shop and then all the people are now suddenly interested in Dr. Caligari because he's like, I have a somnambulist. For 30 or 20 years, this guy has slept continuously. And today, I will wake him up and you can ask him a question and he'll tell you the truth because he's also a fortune teller. And Alan and Francis go, are the first in line and they he wakes up the somnambulist Cesare and Cesare is very creepy. He's very tall. He wakes up. It's a creepy close up. And Alan's like, when will I die? <laughs> <laughs> when will I die? And then Cesare says, dawn. <laughs> and then Alan's kind of freaked out because like well, that's that's pretty uncool. But like it's kind of stupid to ask, when will I die? Um, so they they leave upset. And we never get to see the rest of the show. We're just left. We just leave. And then they like run into um, a girl that they're they're both in love with, Jane. And they're just kind of having a good time. Like, hey, what's up? All right. See you later. And then they go home and Alan sees that there is a murder that has happened last night. And then he's like, oh, shoot. That makes me feel bad because the doctor 
Dr. Caligari's guy told me I was going to die at dawn. But uh, I'm going to go to sleep at my house alone. See you later, Francis. And that night, a shadowy figure approaches Alan and kills him in his sleep. Well, he's he, he gets woken up first, and then he gets killed. And then everybody tells Francis, and Francis and Jane are upset. But I feel like Francis is like, well, now... I have Jane to myself. This is a tragedy, but like I'm kind of benefiting from this a little bit, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, maybe Jane doesn't love him back. Maybe she was actually more in love with Alan. I don't know. There's, we never see that part of it. That's something that maybe I'm inferring on it because they're, I have to guess what they're saying to each other in parts, with, if there, unless there's an inner title. Um, this is kind of the fun of watching the silent film movies. Mm -hmm. You're, you you kind of have to like interpret what what their actions mean. Um, but anyway, they're upset, and Francis is like, "Damn, how could this happen?" Oh, the somnambulist Cesare, Doctor Caligari. We went to go see him, and he said that he that Alan would die today, and Alan's dead today. That's pretty suspicious. I'm going to go to the cops. So they go to the cops. I think um, Jane's mom, Jane's uh, dad helps. They gotta go to the police and the police are like, oh, what? Dr. Caligari? Well, here's the, an off. They just authorize them to go investigate Dr. Caligari. Like they get a permit or whatever. And um, Jane's dad and Francis go over to Caligari's house and they're like asking him questions and stuff. And Caligari's like, oh, shit. Well, you're free to go into my room, my house and like look at my stuff. And they look at Cesare and then they're like, wake him up. And he's like, I don't want to. But at the same time, there's this guy going around trying to stab this old woman. And the old woman, like somebody warns the town and the town chases this guy out and they capture him. They're like, yeah, we got this murderer. He was trying to kill another person and we got him and on his third try. So the word gets around to Francis and um, Jane's dad and they find out that the murder has been caught and they're like, oh, well, I guess it wasn't Dr. Caligari and Cesare. So they leave. And then Dr. Caligari gives like this really funny laugh, like, ha ha, I got away. They uh, talk to the murderer and the murderer is like, well, okay, I did try to kill that old lady, but I didn't kill the other two people. I don't know anything about that. And Francis is like, oh, hmm, maybe it's Dr. Caligari after all. Uh, meanwhile, Jane, she's like, dude, where is my dad? Where is Francis? They went to go see the Dr. Caligari guy. Maybe I'll go check him out myself. She goes over. Dr. Caligari is at the fair and he's like, oh, you want to see Cesare? Here. Here's Cesare. And Cesare sees Jane and Jane's like, this is weird. I'm actually terrified. And she runs away. And then that night, Francis is like, I'm very suspicious of this Caligari guy still. So I'm going to go over to his house and I'm going to watch him. And he goes over to the house and he sees Caligari sleeping in a chair <laughs> and Cesare sleeping in a coffin. He's like, all right, if they any, any funny business, I'll know. Meanwhile, we see 
Cesare walking around the town with a knife going over to Jane's house. She's sleeping. She doesn't see him. Cal uh, Cesare gets in the house, raises a knife. And at the last second, he's like, nah, I don't want to kill you. And then Jane wakes up and she's like, what the fuck? You're trying to kill me. Uh, she, he, there's a struggle and he just like carries her off into the night. And the townspeople see this and they're like, what the fuck? He's trying to kill her. So they chase him and he's trying to run with her. He runs across his bridge and he's like, damn, she's she's too heavy. I'm going to lay her down here. And he continues to run into the forest. And I guess he collapses and dies because he never gets up again. Uh, there's no title card that says he dies, but like a lot of people say that he dies here. So he's dead. Francis he's he's still watching the body he he he's like all right well nothing happened i'm gonna go home goes home finds out jane was abducted and he's like who did this and she's like cesare and he's like but i was watching cesare the whole time how did he do this so the next day he goes back to the police and is like guys i think for sure it's dr caligari so they all go over to dr caligari and he's like, well, I'm here. Here's my here's Cesare. He's sleeping clearly. And then they oh, they try to wake up Cesare. But then Francis is like, this isn't a person. This is a dummy. And Caligari runs away. <laughs> and, and Francis chases him because I guess the cops don't know how to run. Francis chases him all the way into his in insane asylum. And um. He talks to the the doctors there and he's like, hey, do you have a patient by the name of Dr. Caligari? He, and they're like, no, but the director's here. He just came in. He goes to see the director and surprise, it's Dr. Caligari. And he's like, what the fuck? This is the guy. This is the guy who's been killing people. And he gets detained. They go through Dr. Caligari's notes and we see that he has like this journal about this other guy who he, there's another Dr. Caligari who this doctor is like a huge fan of. And he becomes obsessed with this guy's ability to control sleepwalkers and get them to kill people against their will without them ha even knowing what they're doing. So this guy becomes obsessed and he starts it goes into his fantasy of and he sees like these words appear in the forest. You must become Dr. Caligari. You must become Caligari. And he's like, I must become Caligari. And Francis and the doctors are reading this and they're like, what the hell? This guy's nuts. Uh, they eventually find Cesare's corpse and they present it to Dr. Caligari. And Dr. Caligari's like, no, my baby. Mm -hmm. And he tries to attack the, the staff and they're they arrest him, they put him in a straitjacket, and they put him in an asylum. And Francis like, yeah, that's my story. And the old guy's like, damn, that's a story. And then they go inside, but they're in the asylum. We see Jane, who's sitting in like a throne chair, and she's she looks messed up. Uh, Cesare is just like standing around, kind of creepy. Not but, dead. Like, not dead. And Francis is talking to the old guy, and he's like, that's Cesare. Don't let him tell you your future. And the old guy's like, what? I thought he died. <laughs> and then from the, the stairs comes the asylum director, Dr. Caligari again. And Francis is like, you all think I'm crazy. 
that's Dr. Caligari. He's dangerous. He's going to kill us. And the orderlies are like, what the hell is this? Put Francis away again. And they put him in, in the same cell that they put Dr. Caligari in, in Francis's story. And the asylum director is like, you know what? I understand what's wrong with Francis. And I know what I need to do to fix him. And then the movie ends. Yeah, kind of a... It gets a little confusing towards the end. Yeah, a little it, confusing. A little confusing. And also just like the... the the Because I didn't know that uh, Caesar died. I call him Caesar. Okay. I didn't know that Caesar died. I, that, that wasn't the interpretation that I had. Because he's a sleepwalker, I imagined that he fell asleep. <laughs> and then reading on the wiki, I was like, oh, shit, he died. And I was like, oh. I, and like when they're back at the uh, at the uh, at the asylum, I was like, wait, is this a wedding? Because him and Jane are supposed to get like, you know, like Alan's dead. So now him, uh, Francis and Jane are going to get together. And I'm like, but why at the asylum? And I was like, oh, wait, no, he's crazy. Yeah. And yeah. It's oh, she says that line too, where, she, where he's like, Hey, Jane, can we get married? You know, I love you. And then Jane's like, We queens are not free to follow the desire of our hearts. And, and then Dr. Caligari comes down, which is kind of one of the problems with silent, silent films is that like there's so much that's left up to the audience that you don't know whether you're reading it properly or if. It, it was the intention of the filmmakers like it's it's a double-edged sword or it, it's got pros and cons like because it's a silent film you have to work a little bit harder to kind of understand what's happening mm -hmm. but on the other side if you're confused and you don't get it it makes it a little bit harder to enjoy the experience yeah i, I I'm, I'm like half and half with the frame story because yeah the as the story as like Francis's story goes on, it kind of gets a little bit more ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. Like the 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 guy had a dummy in Cesare's coffin thing in case what in case somebody was like watching him at night or something. I don't know. <laughs> it feels like perfectly orchestrated to trick Francis mm -hmm. in this moment. Yeah, and how he just runs away and none of the cops chase him and how he's just the doctor of this asylum. And it's like, why would he do this in his own town where he's a doctor? Yeah. Where people can find him. Yeah. And, and then he has this journal that documents exactly what happened before. And it's the, it's the plot of the movie basically. And he carries it out to a T. Yeah. Well, they, is, th that I mean, yes, it is very convenient to be fair. They kind of like made it seem that it was like hidden. So, you know, he's a doctor. He journals. And I, I don't know. I mean, it was it's not perfect. I it's mean, not perfect. Movies would still have that twist nowadays. They just they just executed a lot better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But at, I, I feel like the the thing that makes me feel better about the movie or would make me feel better about the movie is if like, okay, Francis is might not be like a hundred percent like true in, in his story, <clears throat> but he knows this guy is evil. Like he knows there's something wrong with Dr. Caligari and nobody suspects him because he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe his story isn't like a hundred percent accurate, but there is some kind of truth in there, but because he's a, a, a a patient at a hospital, nobody's going to believe him. 
yeah. so when the when when Dr. Caligari says, I know what I must do to fix him, you know, like he doesn't say what he's gonna do, but there's that whole sequence when they're reading the journal where he's like, I must become Dr. Caligari. So in in my head, I'm like, well, is he gonna pretend to be the doctor? But that's like a pretty good like cover for like actually being a murderer, right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying, oh, I'm just pretending to be one. It's it's kind of like a cool revolving door. It's like I must become Dr. Caligari, but then Francis is like, he is Dr. Caligari. It's like I am, but I was pretending. But now <laughs> I know I know how to fix you. So I'm a, it, it, it gets a little it gets a little topsy turvy because the interpretations that you could have at the ending are, um, because the movie very much is about someone in power. Uh, corrupting the innocent, corrupting the masses, right? And corrupting them for their own greedy desires. To, you know, and here he just wants to be a murderer. He want, he has this he has this desire to want to be the next Caligari, right? In the in the middle part of the story, not taking the frame story into account, right? Right. Uh, so it's clearly someone in a position of power taking advantage of this uh, sleepwalker who kind of represents like the everyday man. And then uh, that's kind of what the story is. And at the very end, he gets justice. There's, you know, he they find out who did it. He gets justice. Bada bing, bada boom. And then with the twist, it's like, oh, it invalidates that story. The frame story confuses the messaging a little bit. Because yeah. now you get into the point of, well, he's not really Dr. Caligari, but he could become Dr. Caligari to fix him. And but then you're just I don't know, it kind of com- it muddles the story up and I don't have a real clear vision as to what does it do ultimately to kind of um, reconcile the movie. There must be some kind of truth in Francis's story. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think movies that have a twist ending like the twist has a, a purpose, right? Like in uh, Mulholland Drive, like the twist ending it like the whole story was to show us how desperate this person became when their their love left them right and how their their dreams kind of like of being like a hollywood star kind of like corrupted on themselves because they saw somebody else get what where they wanted to be right so like mm-hmm. it all has a purpose here there in this movie what what is the purpose of of uh, Francis's delusions. Like for me, I feel like there is something with Dr. Caligari. There is something up with this guy that this guy knows, but he's an unreliable, he's, he's a a patient at a mental hospital. So no one will believe him. Mm -hmm. Even if he was telling the truth, maybe his, his truth is a little bit, clouded by del- he's like an um, an unreliable witness mm-hmm. right or an, an imperfect victim mm-hmm. right because like we can all say oh look what you did we can't believe you but that doesn't change the fact that there's some maybe there's something we should look into this guy mm-hmm. and i think if there was some kind of like look that um the actor Werner krauss gave at the end that let the audience know that like, oh, there is something with this guy, you know, mm-hmm. he's getting away with it. I think then it, it would make the movie better, I want to say. So in 
for me, when he says, I know what I must, but I know what I must do to fix him and then not telling us what it is. It, for me, the autocomplete in my brain is he's going to pretend to be Dr. Caligari, but he actually was the whole time. And the cycle so he, continues. He has like, yes. Yeah. There is something really morbid about that, right? Yeah, and I, I feel like it's it's very real too. Yeah, and you could you could very much see it as like, oh, well, now Francis is going to get better, but it's like, eh. But the doctor could also take advantage of Francis, which we have seen happen right. before many times. Yeah, there's, there's like a whole movie about this uh, doctor who is actually killing people. Yeah, there is something something about these uh, medical professionals. And these like police officers, like these these police officers that can very easily like we underestimate how much power they have, because, yes, we recognize that police officers and doctors and stuff have a lot of power. But it might be even under understated then because they have they wield a lot of they wield a lot of authority. Right. There's that movie Compliance where that there is a fast food. Have you ever seen Compliance? No. It's based off a real story where an officer calls a fast food manager at at the at the restaurant and he's like we have a woman there um who has been uh who has been incriminated in some criminal activities she's been stealing stuff we need you to take her to the back and check her so the manager like is following this person's orders all through the phone and it gets really really bad because like they ask the the girl that's being accused even though she's innocent they're asking that they're asking like the manager and the coworkers to like undress her, to check her, like undress her completely. And like the officer like asks one of the guys to sexually assault her. It gets really graphic. And that's based off a real story, you know? Mm. And well, it's, it, it's like very, it's it, this movie reminded me a lot of those kind of stories. There's another one called Unsane, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It came out in oh, 2018. Oh, yeah, I heard about that one. And yeah. it's very similar to this one because you have Claire Foy, uh, who is like my boy, my ex-boyfriend is stalking me. And then she, I can't remember how she gets put into the uh, asylum or like the hospital, but she's like, that man, that man is my ex-boyfriend. Like he's the one following me. And everybody's like, he's an orderly. And I won't spoil it. Cause it's a lot more recent. I recommend it. It's pretty cool. But uh, it reminded, sorry. It reminded me a lot of Dr. Caligari in the sense of like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. But it's like, yeah, you're sounding kind of crazy. Yeah. If the movie, because a lot of people interpret this as like an anti-authoritarian piece, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like in order for it to be an anti-authoritarian piece or like a warning about the dangers of giving these people this much power, Francis has to be somewhat right, right? Yes somewhat at least well that's the, that's the thing like the ending now kind of negates that because oh it was just in his head you could kind of say like see authority figures don't take advantage of people because it was obviously all a dream end of story right anything else you want to say about the frame story it is it is complicated because even I, I was i was watching the movie for the first time like why did we start off with like this flashback like it just seems unnecessary <laughs> what What's the point to it? You know, and then you get to the then you get to the modern day and you're like, oh, Francis is part of the asylum. I'm like, what does this do to it? It was a little distracting at first. And I, I can't help but wonder, uh. like, would the movie have been better with like the frame story removed completely? The the thing about it, though, is. It 
so this is like a this is considered like a psychological horror film um and i can't help but wonder like or uh, sorry uh it's a it's a silent film that's a silent horror film right right and you know like it has those elements of horror like of death and you've got the main uh the 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 you could argue the slasher um I feel like if it had ended with Dr. Caligari getting like, you know, put in jail, like, yeah, it would have kind of pushed that authoritarian kind of viewpoint, the anti-authoritarian kind of point of view. But, you know, it would have ended really happy. And I feel like in this, the way they have it now, it ends really, really bleak. Like, oh, man, like. Francis is, is stuck in this predicament, like he made it all up. We don't know, like, we don't, we don't know what's real or what's fake. Like, we don't know. And it kind of leaves you at, uh, like, it leaves you unease. Because the entire movie is kind of uneasy. The way it was designed, the way it was sound, like, scored, the, the, the way, like, people are, like, like, uh, made up in terms of their costume and makeup. Like, it's just very uneasy. You know, this isn't a pleasant place to live in. Yeah, it does. And the ending just kind of adds, it's just the culmination of this, like, nastiness, you know, of, like, Mm -hmm. the the environment and the gloomy uh, architecture and the weather. And it's just all, it's just, it makes it more depressing. I'm like, well, this ending makes more sense, given the type of movie you guys are making. Because I can't imagine an ending where, ah, we got Dr. Caligari and Jane and Francis are in love, you know, and... And they're off to have children and stuff like that. I just, I can't see that happening. Well, it could end with them not catching Dr. Caligari, right? Which is kind of how it ends anyway. I think I do like the frame story at the beginning because it kind of starts with this guy talking about like, there's ghosts everywhere. Yeah. And, and, (laughs) and uh, Francis is like, you know what? That story ain't shit compared to what happened to me. Yeah, I thought that was funny. <laughs> so it's like, so it's like, it kind of hypes up what he's about to say, even though we didn't really hear what the old guy said. Like it's like the end of his thing, and, and I don't know. Someone starting a story off that way, it's it's kind of like a movie starting off that way is kind of funny, and it like makes you pay attention more. Yes. I think. Uh, and when we see Dr. Caligari, it's like, okay, he's evil. We know he's evil because Francis said at the beginning of the story that this this story is going to get crazy and that guy looks crazy. And the fact that nobody is like alarmed by him kind of makes it it more tense. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like when you when you're watching a horror movie and you see the, the bad guy, you see the you see him right there, and your characters don't see him. It's like guys look behind, and they're not turning around, and it's it causes like anxiety and, and tension. Well, it's like the, the original Halloween, where everybody exactly. ignores Michael Myers except Jamie Lee Curtis. She's the only yeah. one who notices it. It's like, did you see the guy with the mask? Like, I didn't see anybody. It becomes tense because of how un unalarmed everybody else is. Yes. Like, nobody in a horror movie knows they're in a horror movie, and that's why there's there they can be so much fun. Like, I I think there's a lot of people who go who watch these things with kind of like the wrong intentions. They're like, oh, why didn't they just do this? Because like they don't fucking know they're in a horror movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, but. Yeah, it. I like I like that part of the movie. So I, I like the very beginning of the film, 
Um, it's the when it, the frame story ends, that's where I have a problem with it. Because then it's like, well, if he was having delusions, what caused them? Like, what what am I supposed to get out of that part? Is it like, this is what happens when you try to like make something work that is not supposed to work? Like, Alan and Jane were a couple. It wasn't it wasn't Francis and Jane, and it was like his desperation for that to happen that maybe he killed Alan in, in jealousy or something. You know, then it would make more sense. But the movie never even attempts to like make that the story. So well, it's, it's just like. The doctor's fine, you know, but I don't well, know. it's interesting I, because reading up about the film, that frame story was tacked on. The writers, yeah, well, we can so, talk about that later. Well, there's there's different there's different accounts about the making of this movie, which we'll get to later. Yes. But it's it, yes, very the general, interesting. The general premise is that the this frame story was put in afterwards, and it kind of feels that way a little bit because yeah, instead of them committing to this vision this frame story, having the story work with the frame story in mind, like having the middle part work around the frame story. It seems like it was something that was tacked on. And now if you're trying to interpret this movie, you're trying to figure out, well, what does it all mean? Is the doctor at the end, the savior, because he's going to save Francis or is the doctor going to go and abuse that power and become the next Caligari. And you're just running around in circles. And it really is just the way you interpret it. And it becomes less of like, this is the filmmaker's intent. And it's more of like, I don't know, whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> and that's what kind of makes it frustrating. Sometimes it's yeah. cool. Like, hey, you figure it out. But other times it's nice when a filmmaker has like a vision, even if it's ambiguous in its execution. But the vision is there. It's like, this is what I wanted to say. And this is everything that supports it. Whereas here, it's like the movie's like, these are a bunch of points that we're making. And we're going to throw a twist ending in there because it's going to fuck with people and we'll see how it lands. That's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And it makes uh, it has an interesting viewing. Yeah, like I like the middle part. I The the way it began was really interesting because, yeah, I thought it was hilarious. How he's like, you don't know shit, old man. Like, let me tell you what <laughs> I've gone through. And the old man is looking at him like like he's like. It's interesting because rewatching the movie, the old man's looking at Francis like this dude's crazy. Like that's your fiance. Like the old man is more lucid than Francis, and the old man knows that Francis isn't engaged to Jane. Jane isn't engaged to anyone. Um, so that was my interpretation upon rewatching the film. But then from there, you get into you know the past, which is like the events of the film, and you're like, oh, this is cool. Like everything's things neat. You know, there's. It's mm -hmm. ominous, especially like when people start dying. And then like the fact that Caesar like knows like the answers, like you're going to die in the morning. It makes it ominous. Like it creates this atmosphere of like, oh shit, like, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. And I want to see it happen. It's pretty interesting how, because I, I, I feel like film is kind of like a newer kind of thing at, at this time. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a new medium. And we we go into the story with this guy telling the story, right? Like how people used to tell stories. They just talk to each other. And one person talks for a long time and makes up characters and stuff. And then it goes into this other form of like exhibition where we go to a fair. This is what people used to do back then. They used to like, you know, we didn't have YouTube and, or uh, Netflix or movie theaters to go to to watch movies. People would go to the fair and... This guy would tell you, hey, this is a creature from the Black Lagoon, or this is a 
a, a thing from this exotic land or, you know, they would like tell you a story and then you would see it and it was all a show, right? Like ma magicians, like they put on a show. They're not really doing sorcery, you know, mm -hmm. they're putting on a show and we, we are invited into this thing to like watch a filmed version of what people used to do when they wanted to go out to see entertainment. And I think the, the layers of um, storytelling are, you kind of have to like put yourself in the shoes of people who are not used to really watching movies, I think. So when you see Cesare wake up, it is kind of creepy because I don't think people are used to seeing giant human faces come to life on a giant screen. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know yes, I mean? especially that close up of him waking up. Yeah. And to an extent, like we aren't really used to we're not like super used to that either. Like the way that he looks at the camera, it feels weird. Mm -hmm. Like it it's it's unsettling. Um and f for an audience in 1920, probably even more unsettling. 100% agree with you. I think it's, you know, we've seen close-ups you and I have we we've grown up on cinema so we've been watching this stuff since we were younger, but like this being the new medium that it was and people going out and seeing this and this is a horror movie. Again, like we were saying, it's ominous seeing that giant pasty ass face on screen is definitely unsettling and then the guy being like you're going to die tomorrow morning. <laughs> like I wonder how many people saw that. It's like shit, man. Like what if I'm what if I'm that guy? What if I'm dying tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, I like how uh when he's like upset by this and he leaves with Francis, someone else like takes their place in line. Like what are they going to ask? Mm -hmm. What are like What is and what is Cesare going to tell them? Like he does he as a somnambulist, do you see the future too? I thought I was just sleepwalking. I don't know. It's a cool opening. Very much so. It's a cool opening, and it's and I, I didn't even think about I didn't even think about that. The experience that people had when they first watched this movie was like, what is this like? You know, like seeing someone's face and like the imagery as well, because everything is like like uh, diagonal and slashed and super janky, like very distorted, right? It. It looks like a twisted version of our reality. And I get it must have made people uneasy. Yeah. I feel like Cesare, the way he looks with this like slim black outfit that he has with his like super white face and then like his black hair at the top. I feel like you can see that image throughout the film a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking of like his sign um, Dr. Caligari's sign mm -hmm. when he's like walking around the, the set he kind of like blends into the set a bit mm -hmm. so it's like he's always there I don't know it kind of reminds me of Alien and how the xenomorph it it's the way its body look kind of looks like the Nostromo that they're in so he kind of like blends in he might always be there uh, you see that in the Babadook how like things in the set look like what the Babadook looks like. So it feels like it's there when it's not there. I don't know. I like when horror films do that. It follows does that as well, where like the one character can see the thing and it's a person that can look like anybody. So if there's a person walking to the camera, it's like, Oh, there it is. There it is. Mm -hmm. And the, the film plays around with that idea as well. Absolutely. And yeah, I love the, I love that. Like when, when the creatures are like involved in the environment, 
Mm-hmm. It's like they're part of it. Kind of the descent does that a little bit, right? The descent, yeah. The descent where like the creatures are like hugging the the rocks, and then they just you you see something move, and you're like, oh shit! Like something was there. This movie definitely <laughs> incorporates that as well. And how some shots are like there's like a vignette effect, right? Like you don't see everything cleanly. There's a lot of shadows. Your your vision is obscured throughout the film. I feel like it's a really masterful use of what cinema can do for storytelling. Absolutely. It does make me wish that more movies would kind of aspire to do something like this, because I feel like a lot of movies now will use like, um, well, we'll just use pretty naturalistic settings. Mm -hmm. Or like we'll try to go for a naturalistic look in whatever setting they're in. So like even if you're like in a far off galaxy you know, like most of the time it's going to resemble what our world looks like. And um, yes, this movie does so too, but it does a lot more stylistically where like yeah. the buildings aren't, they're like kind of triangles and like the carts are all, you know, weirdly uh, uh, octagonal or something like that. You know, like it's, it's just really interesting. Right. And I think it just creates a really rich atmosphere where you're looking at it, It's like, wow, like this obviously took a lot of work and a lot of talented people, but it just, it really brings you in the environment. So when you see Caesar, like carrying the woman up, like the, up, like the, the path, mm-hmm. you just get the full effect of it. Right. And I think that's one of my, one of the reasons I would like to see this movie remake remade. It's like now, nowadays with, with digital technology, how could you take this even further? I mean, that would at least be the hope. The concern would probably realistically, what would happen is someone would just take that expressionism and just bring it down to naturalism taking yeah. away that aspect of the movie that makes it stand out that's aged really well because the movie's close to 100 years old or over 100 years it's over 100 years old yeah but it still holds up in terms of design mm-hmm. yeah one thing that uh it depends on where you watch the film because you know the movie did not have color right but it kind of did like they could tint what um certain scenes looked like right so if you watch the film as it was intended uh the night scenes look kind of blue and the daytime scenes look kind of like warm like a sepia like sepia like orange yellowish kind of feel and and black and then like the interiors like i'm thinking um james room like it it feels kind of like that magenta yeah, like a soft red magenta kind of look. And you know, that's that's part of the of the intended experience. Mm-hmm. And the the title cards too were like it's it's not you know, back then when you had to have title cards in your movie to like let you know what the characters were saying, you didn't just have to be text on a black screen like white text on a black screen. It didn't have to be that way. You could do whatever. And this film, it it does that. It like the inner titles for Caligari are like very unique to this movie. Like you could, even if you didn't understand the language, like if you're watching it in German, you could probably tell, oh, that's from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari because of the way it's written. Well, if you compared it to another movie that we've talked about from this era, uh, Within Our Gates? Yeah, Within... 
Within our gates. Within our gates. That had a way more down-to-earth, naturalistic appeal. And probably that had to do a lot with the budget as well. But also the subject matter. Because that world, the at least how Americans were making films back then, it wasn't as expressionist. So there wasn't that like heightened sense of reality. Very much Oscar Michaud was like, this is our world. This is what our world looks like. Whereas the Germans were trying to express something different through their design. Uh, but if you look at that, like the title cards... All naturalistic, like it looks like Times New Roman font or whatever font was popular at the time. But here, like it seems that like the actual words, like the letters were like, you know, printed out, but like designed by with like an artist in mind. And it's like disease going to make all the, have these these really sharp edges that almost like look like knives, you know, and mm-hmm. the letters are sometimes going to be like leading up or leading down. And like the, the spaces aren't always going to be symmetrical. And depending on how the previous letter is written, is going to kind of inform the next letter. It's very detailed. And I'm like, yes, that's awesome. You could have half-assed it and just written times new Roman, but instead it feels like you had an artist go in and like, again, I don't read German. I read the subtitles in whatever font uh, YouTube has it in, has the English. Well, there's there's a version of it that is trying to recreate the experience that the people who watched the movie back then did. Mm, and yeah, so like if you, I think on Amazon, they just have like a generic black and white, normal looking text. And that is like the worst way to watch. Someone yeah. described the score that they use there as like Looney Tunes. And it's like, damn, the, dude. That's another thing. Like the score is variable, right? Because I don't know if there's like a a set score that is like repeated throughout every single screening of the film. I'm sure there was one that was intended, like maybe somebody wrote it for the film, but that doesn't guarantee that every single theater used that score. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, the one on YouTube with the, the, the color that's, and the inner tiles that are like supposed to like match what was um what we saw or what they would have seen back then has a really cool score. Like <laughs> there's like twist, there's twist moments, like reveals that it have a score that matches it, and it is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I definitely recommend watching um, the version of the film that starts off where it's kind of blue and then it goes into like yellow and the inner tiles look funky. That's the one you want to watch. Absolutely. I agree with that too. I feel like you're losing part of the experience, especially in a silent movie where it's like, you're going to have title title cards. They might as well just appear in the proper font. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how this film was made. Uh, It's a very interesting story because everybody who's made the film is now no longer with us and some of them don't agree uh what happened the way it happened kind of like the film itself right <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, unreliable narrators um speaking of unreliable narrators the writers of this film uh hans janowitz and carl mayer neither of them had any experience in making movies and they were met they met in 1918, and I believe the movie went into development the next year. <laughs> so they knew each other for like about a year and wrote a movie together. Uh, they were both poor, and they were both pacifists. 
Now, Janowitz, uh, he was an officer during the war, but he was left embittered by the military experience. And Carl Mayer feigned madness to avoid military service and was subject to intense examinations from a military psychiatrist, which may have had an influence on who he decided the film's villain would be. <laughs> you know, some other things happened around their lives that might have contributed to the film. Janowitz went to a fair in 1913, and he saw a woman disappear into bushes, and then saw a respectable-looking man come out, and later found out that woman was murdered. The two writers visited a circus slideshow called Man and Machine, where a man was able to perform feats of great strength after being hypnotized. There was an actress, Gilda Lang Langer. Uh, she, well, uh, Carl Mayer was apparently in love with her, and she suggested that Janowitz uh, visit a fortune teller. And when he went to go see the fortune teller, fortune teller said, that girl, Gilda, she's gonna die. And she did die. In 1920, a month before the film was released. So a lot of like, okay, I can see how that can inspire this and how that might have inspired that. The prediction thing was kind of weird because they already made the film before she died. Uh, but, you know, I don't know how much I believe what they say about, about this because they say a lot of things about, about writing this movie and how it was making the film that are like, actually... That's not 100% true. So maybe some of the stuff happened. Like, obviously, if the guy was in the military, people would know. You can't just lie about military service. And I guess, I don't know if the documents still exist. I don't know. Anyway, a Germany that was post-World War, because this is made between World War I and World War II, may have also been an influence in writing the film. The writers had gone on to say that they wrote a story that was denouncing the arbitrary authority as brutal and insane. And some people, uh, Herman Warm, who was a set designer for the film, said Mayer, Carl Mayer, had no political intentions when writing the film. <laughs> and his hist historian, David Robinson, suggested that Janowitz only talked about the film's anti-authoritarian themes after the film had been released and the interpretations that other people watching the film made them. So it's kind of like a, oh, I think this film is talking about the dangers of authority. And maybe the writer's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> but like maybe maybe on some like, sub to be fair, he does say it was like maybe in the subconscious you're trying to make something that's anti-authoritarian. Yes. Which could be true, you know. I mean, that, that, that yes, that is a hundred percent true. So maybe he might have not done it intentionally, but there might have been something from their experiences. Because again, uh, one of them was was treated by a psychiatrist, and then the other one was in one of them. One of the other writers was in war, and he had like an, an officer that was really shitty to him. So they both had ne negative experiences with that. I feel like that. Well, I think Janowitz was was an officer. No, I think, but he had someone above him that treated oh. him really badly and sent people to die. So he was, oh. I think he was an officer, but someone above him was making his life unpleasant. And I mean, it's the war. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Like mm -hmm. when you're a general Absolutely. or whatever, like you have to send people to die. Like, unfortunately, especially back then. 
Like that was oh, the way it was. It's like, go attack this and hopefully you make it out. And I think Janowitz was the one that said like that really fucked with him. Mm, so okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one was like, because uh, I'm sure they both had something internal that manifested in the way the script came out that maybe they weren't totally aware of. Right. I think so too. I don't I like, I, I feel like, okay, definitely they're making some stuff up, but they're not making everything up. It doesn't mm-hmm. invalidate everything that they say. Cause like, we both watched the movie. I feel like there is an anti-authoritarian vibe yes. to it, right? Well, someone the, take, someone clearly taking advantage of someone else for their own yes. greedy needs. And then right. you find out, oh, he's the director of an asylum. Uh, like, he's been, he's been taking advantage of this person for years for his own twisted experiments. Like, it mm-hmm. makes sense. It's very obviously there. Yes. Um, the f- another thing that they... I think we talked about this earlier that the the frame story structure is something that the writers are like, we didn't want that at all. That was forced on us. That mm-hmm. was the the producer, the director. They they added that. Um, they said that the they didn't know the final film would have that structure, and they felt it undermined the anti-authoritarian themes, which kind of agree with a little bit. Janowitz claimed that he and Mayer were not privy to discussions about adding the frame story and strongly opposed its inclusion believing it had deprived the work of its revolutionary and political significance. He wrote that it was an illicit violation, a raping of our work. Little strong use of that word. Um, it was 1920. They did. They, they did. Okay, bud. <laughs> they turned the film into a cliche in which the symbolism was to be lost, which I don't really agree with. I feel like it's still there. It mm-hmm. just might be a little bit weaker. Maybe. Yes. Um, the writers suggested that they take legal action and allegedly had to be persuaded not to protest publicly because they were so upset that their story had changed. Now, film is old. Uh, there's very not old. very many copies of the script. But the guy, actor who played Dr. Caligari, Werner Krauss, he actually had a copy of the script. And I there was... They like wanted to people wanted to see it so they get the bottom of the story, but he's like, no. And then when he died, a film archive institution, uh, Deutsche Kinematik, it's a German um, film archive, they bought it in seven in the 70s, and then decades later in 95, they made they like made it available to the public. And guess what? There's a frame story there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, hey, writers, what do you mean there's no frame story? But there's more. Because if you look at the frame story, it's very different from the frame story in the final film. Because in this version of the script, Francis, and I feel like this is like the most, this is what they probably turned in. because This is what the actor had, right? In the script, Francis and Jane are hosting a party. So they're together, right? They're not in some like in uh insane or mental institution or anything, right? They're they're hosting a party and people are like, Hey, tell us that story of Dr. Caligari. And he's like, Oh boy, hold on to your butts. And then the movie happens. And we don't go back to the party. It ends with Dr. Caligari getting thrown 
in in a cell. There's no bookend at the mm. end, which I think maybe the writers weren't lying about this part. Maybe the the whole frame story might have been like, okay, we'll start the movie this way, but if we end it with it being Francis who's been lying to us, then that kind of invalidates the authoritarian thing. Maybe they didn't have anything to do with that part of it, like the way the movie ends in the final version of the film. So maybe they're not lying about not knowing anything about the frame story in the way that the final film is. And it, it's it's hard to say, honestly. Like at this point, there's not much that can, because it's so old too. And it makes sense. Like they had an original frame story because it was just a setup of the movie. Someone came in and said, well, let's change it up so we can have a twist ending and it could fuck with people. And they're like, well, that just ruins the entire story. Like it all makes sense. But when you compare it to the original manuscript, to what you got, it's like, oh, they that really did change the uh, the direction of the story. Because obviously you the frame story was just to set up the story. Now it's just questioning that the entire thing didn't happen. You know, it's kind of like a, a usual suspect thing. Like, oh, everything we heard was a lie. Mm -hmm. But in the usual suspects, there is like a villain, right? There, there is, is a yes. boogeyman. Kaiser Soze. Yeah. Who, who is a part of the story. Yes. So like there is a Dr. Caligari in that movie. There wow. might not be a Dr. Caligari in this one. It's it's interesting. We're talking, we're comparing, drawing some similarities to like modern movies, like Unsane, mm -hmm. Usual Suspects. What was the other one I said? Oh, Compliance, like authority. Compliance. Um, like oh, you can't trust them because that person is not right, you know. And I, I don't know. I just when done correctly, I feel like it's a really cool, um, structure. For Absolutely. Like Candyman, I love it. Mm -hmm. The what was the one with all the controversy with Florence Pugh? And everything. Oh, don't worry, darling. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> it was all a dream. Oh it's my like, god! Oh. I heard. I haven't seen it. I don't want to say. Anything. I just. I remember somebody said this is like a stupid person's idea of a smart movie. I'm like, damn, that is brutal. <laughs> my it, god. You know what though? Like, I could definitely see that. Yeah, it, <laughs> it had potential, but yeah. Anyway. When it came to like actually making the film, right? We talked about German expressionism, which I don't think we really defined. Um, expressionism is basically the art of like expressing an emotional experience rather than like a realistic one, right? So like the the world of Dr. Caligari doesn't reflect an actual city, you know, it reflects. A, uh, it gives us an experience that is supposed to be true on an emotional level. So this town's all twisted because the story's twisted, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so the producers of the film, Eric Palmer and Rudolf Meinartz, um, who were, I guess, the producers of the um, Decla Film Company, which was a production company for this film. There's kind of conflicting reports on like who was the real producer, but they both, they're both of their names come up. So I'm going to say both of them did it. <laughs> uh, they kind of saw this film as an opportunity to make money because Palmer, he read the script, he, the, the two writers pitched it to him and he's like, hmm, I think I can make some money with this. I feel like this movie would be really cheap to make. And if it's mm -hmm, cheap yeah. to make, it can make some money. 
And Rudolf Meinertz, when the director and his art buddies were like, hey, what if we try to make this an expressionist film? Meinertz like, oh, well, expressionism is kind of hot right now. So even if the movie is garbage, people are going to go see it because expressionism is in. Yes, do it. Meanwhile, you have these expressionists who are like, we really like this art style. We really think we can elevate what film could be if we tell this story in this weird artistic way. And because these producers are like, yes, it'll be cheap. It'll make money. It's popular. Do it. You have like a kind of happy accident or not really an accident, but like a happy collaboration between people whose goals might be different, but it all came together into making a movie that we're talking about over a hundred years later. <laughs> that's cons- you know, that's considered no, that- one of the greatest silent films of all time. That's so funny. It's like, I want to make money. I want to make art. Well, shit, it kind of worked out. <laughs> there's, worked way, out. there's way too many stories of it not working out. So I'm glad it did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, apparently the writers were like not fans of expressionism and you know some some of the they some of them i forget which one said he was there like from day one like on set that one of the the expressionist artists there's three three set designers herman warm walter ryman and walter rohig uh who are all expressionists they're like bro he he was not there like none of them were there at all and they're saying they were there so it's like, who's telling the truth here? Yeah, the guys who kind of lied already, <laughs> or the people or the, that were that were supposed to be on set every day building the actual sets. Yeah, so it's kind of like, all right, but what? Okay, I, you're making it hard to believe your story when you're lying. It's like somebody's not telling the truth here, and these guys haven't lied yet. So the writers didn't like the artists and Janowitz. To to the grave, he was like that. That movie they destroyed our story. But Mayer eventually was like, I didn't like it at first, but like actually, it's kind of cool. At the time, they said that they had requested somebody be the the cubist art style, but they got expressionists instead. And they're like, ah, oh, this is not what we wanted. But like, if you read the script, there's no visual. There's nothing that indicates that the film would have like a strong visual style. So it's like, guys, why pick your battles? <laughs> yeah. um, and you can kind of see expressionism not just in the way the sets are designed, but also in the way that the people act. Because Con- uh, Conrad Veidt, who plays uh, the Somnambulist, who plays Cesare, he's moving around not like a normal person. He's moving around like a dancer. He's kind of blending into the sets. Like it's it's very like... Gautier, I guess. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that. <laughs> you remember that? Gautier? The, some, somebody that we used to know. Oh, or that one? Have to cut me off. That one. Yeah, yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. Like he's yeah. moving around, oh, like, absolutely. like trying to blend in and yes. shit. Yes. 100%. Um, Actually, that's a really good comparison. <laughs> uh, yes. And then the, the Dr. Caligari dude, he's like moving weird. Like clearly, those guys are like really playing in a different movie from everybody else but also some historians and people who study art uh, are like yeah yeah the way alan is acting he's like 
way too normal and that he kind of stands out because he does he doesn't belong in this movie either and that makes him like the perfect first victim because it's like oh alan he was so happy now he's dead there's no beauty in this world and so it, you can see it in the acting you can see it in the sets but also in the inner titles that we mentioned that are kind of weird as well and you can also see it in the marketing of the film because if you look at the poster for the cabinet of dr calgari and compare it to other posters of that time cabinet of dr calgari poster stands out that is that is a creepy ass poster it goes hard <laughs> yeah sorry i'm looking up at the, the posters it, it, it's interesting it's cool to look at what uh, posters are you looking at mm-hmm. i just the googled post- it Oh, just the cabinet? Yeah, but I'm also looking at the one on Wiki. Yeah, like most of the pictures that are around this movie posters that are around this time are like more realistic. Right? Like you you, the people look like people. Um, It's like, oh, that's that actor. This is this actress, you know. But when you look at Caligari, it's like, okay, those are people, but they look fucked up. And I don't know who that's supposed to be. <laughs> they look sickly. Yeah, it's very strong style, and it's something that we're kind of like missing now. I, I in in places like I I like some Marvel movies. All right, I'm not gonna be afraid to say it. I like some fucking comic <gasps> book movies. Okay, some of them are pretty cool, but their posters are, are almost always terrible or like so generic. It's just, it does nothing for me, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I will admit it too. I like some Marvel movies as the cinephile I am. <laughs> uh, no, I enjoy Marvel movies a lot, but yeah, most of their posters are ass. I will say the Infinity War one goes pretty hard. Like the fact that they were able to include that many characters. I don't know. It's, it's not in our real artistic achievement, but I think it's just badass. It gets me hyped. I saw that poster and I was like, all right, let's fucking think, do this. I think that I'm excited. I was excited for the film to come out. I didn't really think about the poster. It was oh. just, a, oh, yeah, that movie's coming out. You know, mm. it doesn't. It's not like, ooh, what's that movie? You know, well, again, going, going, going to the poster for Dr. Caligari, uh, for Dr. Caligari, like it's ex- like it, ex- it expresses an idea and a tone. Right. And like the way it's all written, the font. The way it's hand drawn, it definitely conveys like there's something very odd about this world, something dangerous, uh, elusive, dark, grimy, almost uh, sinister, sinister. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think that that poster conveys a lot of that. And there's only like three characters and one of them's like kneeling down like in a cross like figure. And the other like says Caesar just looks, you know, sickly. So yeah yeah like the uh, the movie posters are like a lost art like i think like good good ones like the godfather with the freaking marionette shit uh jaws yeah star wars the og star wars og star wars there's some good ones out there we we need we need to we need to get some good ones and movies coming out now Anyway, that's all I have to say about the expressionism and, and everything. What do you have? 
Well, I really have one thing that I wanted to touch on, which is kind of this movie came out after uh, World War One. And I was curious as to how that movie may have affected or how that war may have affected the creation of this movie and kind of if it tied into it at all in any way, shape or form. There was something that I read that was really interesting, right? It's called The Reflection on Post-War War One Germany. And it goes, uh, critics have suggested that Caligari highlights some of the neuroses prevalent in Germany uh, when the film was made, particularly in the shadow of World War One, at the time when extremism was rampant, uh, reactionaries still controlled German institutions and citizens feared the harm of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which would have affected the economy. Uh, Siegfried wrote that paranoia and and fear portrayed in the film were signs of things to come in Germany. And it's almost like there's like Caligari represents like a almost dictator, a tyrant that would like come over and like control the masses through like hypnosis, not in a literal sense, but like through, through something similar through hypnosis, find a way to control the masses and, uh, you know, like kind of lead Germany into the next era, right? And people recall that, well, that's kind of what happened with Hitler coming, Mm -hmm. you know, years because German, German, I don't know my history too well, but Germany was definitely hit with a depression after World War One. And that's how Hitler was able to rise. And because of that, he was able to kind of quote unquote hypnotize people and really get them into the Nazi party, right? It didn't start off with, I hate the Jews. It started off with other other message other messages that would evolve into anti-Semitism. If I'm, I mean, if you're a historian and I'm off, I this is the general stuff. Like this is what I can remember and what I've gathered. I might be off by some stuff, but that's kind of the general knowledge that I have. If you're a historian and you're and you think I'm full of shit, please let me know so I can learn better. <laughs> uh, but there, that's like one of the interpretations, right? It's that Germany, it was in a in a volatile state and that the people wanted a tyrant, someone with authoritarian power, like this inner desire. The movie, in a weird way, symbolizes that need for an authorian, authoritarian figure. But it was there was also this interpretation that you know, the German government had misled these people that, that, that the, the people, AKA Caesar were, were being taken advantage of, uh, for the government's will. Right. And you could also read that as the German government telling the army, sending the army out to go do, to, to go fight this war. Uh, those were a few of like the interpretations. Okay. Vincent Lobruto wrote that the film can be seen as a social or political analogy of the moral and physical breakdown of Germany at the time with a madman on the loose wrecking havoc on a distorted and off balanced society, a metaphor for a country in chaos, which goes back to the design of the film, the jagged edges, the sinister feeling. It's like Germany was not in a prosperous time. So you, they, they really built the set to indicate that sense of dread that was or that sense of imbalance of sinisterness in the country. In his book, From Caligari to Hitler, Krauker, I can't pronounce his name properly. Oh, yes. I've I remember seeing this guy's name uh, when talking about the frame story. Oh, Krauk, Krauk, Krauker. Yeah, I remember that book, too, from from. Uh, Caligari to Hitler. 
Yeah, it's well, it's there's some interesting stuff. I didn't know it was a book, but he says he argues that Caligari, the Caligari character, is sympto- symptomatic of symptomatic of a subconscious need in German society for a tyrant, which he calls the German collective soul. He goes on to argue Caligari and Caesar are premonitions of Adolf Hitler and his rule over Germany, and that his control over the weak-willed, puppet-like somnambulist prefigures aspects of the mentality that allowed the Nazi party to rise. He calls Caligari's use of hypnotism to impose his will foreshadowing of Hitler's manipulation of the soul. He described the film as an example of Germany's obedience to authority and failure or willing unwillingness to rebel against deranged authority and reflects a general retreat into a, a shell that occurred in post-war Germany. Caesar symbolizes those who have no mind of their own and must follow the path of others. Crocker wrote he foreshadows a German future in which self-appointed Caligari's hypnotized innumerable Caesars into murder. Barlow rejects Crocker's claim that the film glorifies authority just because it has not made a preachy statement against it and said the connection between Caligari and Hitler lies in the mood the film conveys, not in the endorsement of such tyrant on the film's part. So it kind of goes back to what we were saying that the there's a bit of ambiguity in there that leads a lot of people to say, well, no, this is how I'm interpreting the Bible, when in reality, it really just seems like it was at the will of the writers and the executives making a movie rather than a conscious artistic statement. There's no way you can can watch the movie and and be like, yeah, we need a tyrant. You know what I mean? I don't I don't think that's I think there was like a warning of this is well, there, this could happen to us. There is a warning, but I mean with that twist ending, you know, it could be like a that the the common folk there's a delusion with them and that they do need a Dr. Caligari like the the common folk have a uh, have a misunderstanding of their own situation because of the because of the uh, the paranoia, the the potential like um the paranoia that resides within them and that you mm-hmm. do need someone in the institution to come in and lend a hand because Caligari at the end is not the same sinister Caligari that we met earlier on. That is one potential interpretation as well. Now, do I lean towards that interpretation? Not really. I still think that it is anti-authoritarian, but again, that ending throws a wrench, a wrench in that entire reading because I could come here and say, Austin, it's a happy ending because Francis is going to get cured. He's going to think properly and (laughs) shit, they helped Caesar. You know what? That sound looks pretty full, though. It looks full. (laughs) But but, but that that is the thing, though. Asylums are, I mean, asylums have have a cultural image of being like, where the crazies hang out. And you've got the people in the straight jacket just, eat your soul. And, you know, like Batman, one of the biggest locations in the batman anthology is arkham asylum and that's a crazy place you know but Mm. we have to understand that you know in real life asylums are a place of 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 of, of medication and they do try to help people at least where you're supposed to be helped but like oftentimes they are not it's kind of like where we where we put people to forget about them exactly so there's so there is a again it's very subjective but it's also you can make that argument that no, Caligari at the end is a good guy. That Francis is the one suffering from some psychosis, and he's just coming up with this tale because of some potential traumas that he had in his past that he hasn't addressed. It's it's up in the air, really. Um, mm-hmm. And it does lead to a kind of confused reading because now you have these two people saying, 
eh, it's this and oh, it's not that. I think it does it potentially for the better because it's interesting to read these interpretations. But those are potential readings of the text, right? And, you know, that's it's it, it is it, it came right after World War One and Germany was broken after World War One, you know? That the conclusion of that war very much led to the second the Second World War. And that's that's a way more that's that's way more clear to see who was in the wrong. Mm. So it it is it is interesting to kind of see these interpretations and kind of this this reading of the collective the German collective soul being distorted and being ugly right like it's not a beautiful place you know when you compare Mm -hmm. it to other films where it's like oh my god look at this town look at our country like aren't we awesome interesting stuff that i i feel like we should try to look at another film uh that came out from germany during this period to see it's like compare and contrast absolutely um like expressionism versus not expressionism but maybe how this uh i think they call it the weimar republic right this this period of time uh weimar republic officially known as the german reich was a historical period of germany from the 9th of november 1918 to uh march 23rd to 1933 during which it was a constitutional federal republic for the time first time in history Hence, it also referred to as unofficially breaking this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this during this period, see if that sentiment can be found in in another film of of that era. Mm-hmm. That is very true. That'd be that'd be really interesting to explore also, a little bit it, more of that German era. Yeah, it also probably wouldn't fall under the um AMPTA AMPTP because the strike, unfortunately, is still going on. Yes, very the true. studios have decided that you know what, SAG-AFTRA, we don't like we. You should have taken our deal. We're well, not gonna we're not th- gonna talk to you anymore. Th- there are some positive things happening right now where they're saying that uh, everyone is kind of reaching a deal. So hopefully, hopefully this oh. ends soon, uh, so just people can get back to work and you know have their livelihoods back, uh, and hopefully they get a good and fair deal. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, but that is, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think until the strike stops, I think we're going to keep talking about movies outside of the AMPTP. And, which is a shame, though, because I would like to talk about some other movie, you know, like the studio, you know, like I do like talking about the studio movies, you know. But uh, but yeah. it is cool to re- revisit films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and stuff. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk about, like, some of the more recent films like we have a megan episode it just yes, we do we don't feel like it's the time to release them uh maybe a movie uh something covering the scorsese movie because man that's a really great movie uh i would love to talk about it and on, on the patreon and there's also this really oh my god the freaking do you hear about joe russo's tiktok <laughs> i i did Oh, what an idiot, dude! <laughs> My God, Ugh. I love I love movies. I love uh, talking about them. Um, thank you for listening to this episode. Oh, dude, I can't end the episode yet. We got to do our quotes. We have to do our quotes. I forgot to, to get a, a quote 
uh like right before because i was like oh wait no we these <laughs> this is a silent movie but there's still dialogue yeah yeah do you have a quote i do Okay, so this is the part of the movie, the part of the episode where, in lieu of a five-star system, we come up with a quote from the movie that represents how we feel about the movie. Very expressionist, I think, right? <laughs> um, it can be our favorite quote. It can be a quote that makes us laugh. It can be a quote that summarizes the conversation we just had. George usually goes first, and George usually breaks the rules. Not today, just because there weren't that many quotes to take from. <laughs> uh, this is a silent movie. I, I can't. There's not that many quotes I can pick, guys. Uh, but this was kind of a cool one. It kind of uh, it kind of uh, resembles how I feel about the movie because there's so many different uh, interpretations of what happened, what didn't happen. Some people are lying. Some people aren't. Some people may have forgotten stuff. Maybe people have pivoted their opinions. And there's so many readings because of the framework changing and being rewritten and and it's it, because of the time it was given as well it's like oh well this obviously foreshadows hitler uh so my quote the way i feel about the movie is from dr caligari himself and he says i must know everything i must penetrate the heart of his secret i must become caligari that's pretty good and i think that in that that like that statement on I want to learn about this. I want to be this. I want to understand this and how he worked kind of like reflects my curiosity with the film. Cause I'm like, what really happened? Like, I want to know, right? <laughs> Movies nowadays have like behind the scenes stuff. We have a like deadline variety, Hollywood reporter that report on it. This is a movie from over a hundred years ago. The records don't exist. They might've been destroyed. They might be in some vault. They might be in some archive, we have no fucking clue. So we we really don't know what happened. Yeah. So that's a good one. I I'm stuck between two. So this time I'm breaking the rules. Oh, I was I was I really like that quote that you had. I think it's a great use of like, yeah, this kind of summarizes how we feel about the movie. But there's two quotes that kind of like stuck with me. I was going to do You Must Become Caligari because of the way they, they put the text in and you see Dr. Caligari like becoming obsessed. Um, but there was another one that towards the end of the film that Jane has where she's like, we queens are not allowed to pursue the desires of our hearts. Because it's like, she's not saying she doesn't love him, right? Mm -hmm. She's saying she's not allowed to pursue this and it's kind of like thrown in there like randomly but it doesn't sound like crazy you know because like there's a there's a nugget of truth in there you know um so that 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 quote like stuck out to me i'm still trying to like think it, it gives me like hope to like okay maybe there is something wrong with caligari and he's taken maybe taken advantage of her as well because she in the story she was a victim right uh and then the other one i have is at the very beginning of the movie where uh francis is telling his story uh, where he, he he tells the doctor or he tells the old man at the bench like what she and i have lived through is stranger still than what you have lived through <laughs> 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 which 
gets me interested in the movie, even like years after I've I've uh, first seen it, like I was sitting down to watch the movie again. And like when he says this, the like arrogance of it is like caught me off guard. <laughs> oh, man. No, it, it is funny. It absolutely happened to me, too. I laughed. At that <laughs> I was like, oh, OK, let's see. All right. Let's see, buddy. And it is it is a strange movie. It's it's unlike a lot of other movies, but it is kind of similar to like everything else because everything else came after this and they probably saw this and was inspired by it or was inspired by something that was inspired by this. And I feel like a lot of like in real life, when people say stuff like that, sometimes the story's lame, but it always makes you listen. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's the oldest trick in the book. You're never going to believe what just happened. And then they say the most believable thing after. And it's like, well, you had my attention. <laughs> uh, so and my d- disappointment is unmeasurable. <laughs> but you know what? You're going to say that again next week and I'm going to fall for it again. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, that's those are my my two quotes. The Caligari, I'm, you must become Dr. Caligari is like. That would have been my quote, but I didn't want to like copy you. So, well, you could copy. That's okay. Nah, 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 nah. I wanted it gave me an excuse to talk about these other ones. It's such a cool like villain line, like mad scientist. You know, I must become Caligari. Yeah, and the way like the text appears on the on the screen, like, and the the character is reacting to it. You know, like they didn't have like green screens or markers and shit, where it's like, all right, uh, uh what's his name, Werner. Werner Krauss, mm-hmm. there's going to be text here and you're going to have to like react to it. Uh, I don't know if they probably did explain something like that to him, but it was that concept very new. Like sometimes people struggle with like, all right, there's going to be a green screen character, a CGI character here. And they're like, what? Who? This is my scene partner. But, like this guy was doing it a hundred years ago. And now that shit's just like normal. So that's, is pretty cool. It's a very cool scene. There's a lot there's a lot of great stuff in this movie that I mean people have kind of built upon. And this isn't the only mm-hmm. movie to do it. Obviously other movies did it as well, but like this movie was definitely at the forefront of all that as well. Yeah. Because it, it yeah, it came out 100 years ago. Mhm. Well, I think that's all we have for this episode. Um, I hope you have a happy Halloween. We have a new episode up on the Patreon. If you're a subscriber, come check it out. We do a horror movie subgenre tier list. Um, we rank 11 different horror subgenres in terms of what we think is goaded to what we think is just like kind of, oh, it's one of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, upcoming on the Patreon, we have a video version of movie genre tier list. We have a, an episode where Jorge got so upset he had to like take water breaks to continue yelling at his microphone. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. he's he's has he's had a hard time editing it because I'm I'm sure he feels ashamed by how hard he was yelling. Hey man, someone had to say it. Hollywood's been acting <laughs> stupid. They need to get their shit together, man. Yeah, we can agree on that. Next on the episode on the podcast, I'm not really sure what we're gonna cover. Maybe another anime, maybe a silent film, a documentary, maybe docu- perhaps. Maybe documentary. We'll find out. We'll figure it out, and we'll have one ready 
for you soon. You can follow us for updates on our social media. We are at retrograde underscore pod on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. Or I'm only calling it Twitter. I'm not calling it the other stupid name. Yeah, uh, we have a Facebook group. We have a Discord where we can talk about movies and video games and all that stuff. But you have to DM us. You have to DM us so that we know you're a human, not under the mind control of a nefarious Dr. Caligari. All right, because there's a lot of a lot of dangerous people out there. They're just trying to steal our info and steal our money. We're not going to let them do that. Uh, so, yeah, with that, we will see you in two weeks. Hopefully we'll see you later. Bye bye. Bye.